Are you ready to start? Greta Thunberg, David Attenborough, one's a teenage girl, the other's a guy in his 90s. Both ends of the scale, both with a message. Our world is in trouble. On one side, you've got climate change, deforestation, rising sea levels, polluted oceans, potential extinction of species, toxic air, urbanization, exhausted fossil fuels, overpopulation. On the other, the push for renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, reduction in carbon emissions, plant a tree, save the polar bear, eat ethically, reduce, reuse, recycle. Now, the prevalence of that latter list in our public consciousness is a relatively new thing. Greenpeace is almost 50 years old, but up to 10 years ago, many of the terms I have just mentioned were used and understood by just a tiny fringe group of lobbyists. But now they feature in our education system from the earliest years. While the science is overwhelmingly clear in terms of the reality of climate change and the resultant environmental crisis stemming from that, there will always be some debate about the greatest causes, the timetable for any doomsday, doomsday scenario, and above all, there'll be a debate about the best way to tackle it or certainly what measures should take priority. Nevertheless, given the reality that whatever the causes or extent, something is amiss. Whole islands are under threat, species are in danger, vast areas of the planet somehow are becoming uninhabitable. How should the Christian respond? Because the answer is not as obvious as you might think, at least to some people. Leaving aside for the moment the small number who might query the existence of any crisis, there are those from within the Christian tradition who would doubt whether or not this should be a priority for Christians, or whether it should even be discussed at all in any series on mission. Now, there could be at least two interrelated reasons for this. Firstly, some will have a particular view of the end times. And they'll say something like this, the whole show is going to be burned up anyway, that's part of God's plan, part of his judgment, so why should we waste our energy on trying to save what is inevitably doomed? They quote passages such as 2 Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. We'll come back to that. Secondly, some believe that given the sheer size and scope of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, and given the limited time we have here on earth, we need to concentrate solely on preaching the gospel and getting people saved. So, eschatology, our view of the end times, missional priority. Two reasons that Christians may not think too seriously about this issue of creation care. Let's have a closer look. We're continuing this series about God's people and our mission, and how this year we could be recommissioned to live out his purposes for us and for the world where he has placed us. And we're going to look now at how we are a people who should care for creation. Like Christoph did last week, we need to start at the beginning, and when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we see something stated clearly and unequivocally. Humanity was created with a specific and explicit command to care for the place where they were put. 
God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. So before we go any further, regardless of whether there is or isn't a current environmental crisis, we still have a mandate. We could even go as far as to say that millennia before the Great Commission of Matthew 28, there was what could be called the Cultural Commission or the Creation Commission of Genesis 1 and 2. And if it was God's mission, His purpose, to place us here with a particular task in mind, then surely it's part of our mission to carry out that mandate and participate in what was clearly God's will for us. Four strangers found themselves at a table on a train, as you do. They got round to talking about what they did for a living. The first man said, well, I belong to the oldest profession in the world. I'm a horticulturalist. I'm the head gardener out at Mount Stewart. I follow in the footsteps of the first man, Adam. The second was a woman, and she said, well, I believe my profession is older. I'm a surgeon at the city hospital. And wasn't it the divine surgeon who took a rib from Adam and made Eve? Ah, said the third man, but I can beat that. I'm an architect in Belfast. I design great buildings. Actually, I'm going to a church in Ballyhackamore soon to show my plans for the proposed new church buildings. Everybody's going to show up. And wasn't it the divine architect who designed the cosmos, bringing order out of chaos? Yes, said the fourth guy, but I'm an MLA with an office at Stormont. Who do you think caused all the chaos in the first place? Well, let me introduce a fifth person to the company. If John Martin or any of his colleagues had been there, they could have had every right to go up to those four and say, sorry, ours is actually the oldest profession undertaken by humanity, because Adam wasn't so much a gardener as a conservationist. Genesis 1 is the introduction to the whole book. Genesis 2 goes back to the beginning and tells the story, expands it, and we get the mandate repeated in chapter 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Now, if you bear with me, this is quite important. Because Genesis 1, we have the initial mandate to care for creation. But it contains a couple of words that have proved problematic in some circles. The words are sometimes translated subdue and rule. In fact, some have pointed to those words to blame the environmental crisis on Christians, who it is claimed have used those words to justify ecological exploitation. Now, I'm not sure that many Christians have actually done that, and it certainly is an abuse of the text. Subduing and ruling need not, in fact it should not, involve exploitation for the selfish needs of the ruler. Uh, subdue simply means harnessing. Ruling means keeping in order exercising responsibility over. So it covers, for example, everything from basic agricultural skills to the building of wind turbines and solar panels. These words subdue and rule are actually kingship words. So as the heavenly king created his universe, he puts humanity there as his regents, as his little kings. So how we rule the world in which we are placed should murder how God rules his creation. That's the template. 
A good principle of understanding the Bible is that you use the later parts to understand the earlier parts. That's why we look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And Genesis 2 comes after Genesis 1. So we're able to understand the command, subdue and rule, by the words used in Genesis 2, where it said that man has to work and take care of creation. But even that translation doesn't go far enough because work is a translation of the Hebrew word abad, meaning literally to serve. And take care is a translation of the Hebrew word shomer, which means protect or guard. So in the fullness of the Genesis creation account, all of us, women and men, were placed on this earth and given kingship over the animals and plants and natural resources to serve them and to protect them. Now this, of course, is all before everything went pear-shaped. One area that gets really screwed up after the fall in chapter 3 is the area of relationships. Initially, we're at peace with our Creator God, with our fellow humans, and with our environment. And suddenly, relationships become defined instead by power and greed and a grasping for ourselves. So, quite clearly, our relationship with God is broken because we tried to grasp at being God ourselves. Our relationship with each other is broken, and from innocent intimacy and harmony, men and women start bickering and fighting and blaming and struggling for supremacy. But also the third relationship is broken. We're at odds with the rest of creation, and they are at odds with us. And it ends with humanity being cast out of the garden. The rest of the story, of course, is one not just of people exploiting other people, but of people exploiting the creation around them, stripping and wasting resources instead of, Genesis 2, serving and protecting. And so you see how this area of serving and protecting is, in fact, the exact opposite of what our culture understands by those words, subdue and rule. In our fallenness and selfishness and brokenness, we have perverted the concepts of rule and authority. The original intent of God was for us, because we were made in his image, to exercise authority over creation as he does, by serving it, not by exploitation, but by conservation. And so, for example, you've got man naming all the animals, uh, an example of authority, a taxonomy, if you like, which goes on to this day as new subspecies are discovered and named. To summarize then this early picture of the biblical record, the command to care for creation is fundamental to our humanity. It's given to us before sin enters the world, and it's intrinsically linked to who we are as made in God's image. It's interesting that, as a little aside here, that theologians often refer to three things that were instituted by God before the fall, before sin came and spoiled things. Number one is marriage, male and female, tied in with the command to fill the earth. And number two and three are work and rest, Sabbath. And we have seen that work, although it can be extended to apply to any type of work, in this context, it refers essentially to creation care. Now, as Christians, we tend to be pretty good at standing up for marriage, 
In our words, at least, we can make some noise about that, and and rightly so. But we're not so noisy on the other issues. Our workaholism, even in Christian service, belies the gift of Sabbath that is there before the fall. And we're probably not doing what we should in the whole area of serving and protecting creation. But here, all three are there side by side at the very beginning. So what about creation care and the rest of the Old Testament? Very briefly, the Bible reiterates these commands very strongly. The Psalms are full of images of creation praising the Creator. In Proverbs 12, verse 10, the sign of a righteous man is one who looks after the welfare of his animals. The role of a king in the Old Testament was meant to include speaking up for the powerless and voiceless. So if we're to be little kings with delegated authority from God, then we don't just do this for the weak and the impoverished and the exploited and the unborn, but also for the inanimate creation. And we can see, too, the connection that the poets and prophets painted between righteousness and salvation and sin and judgment with regard to creation. When we turn to God, we see his provision and creation. Psalm 65 is a psalm about turning back to God. And it finishes, you care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with corn. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. The meadows are covered with flocks. The valleys are mantled with corn. They shout for joy and sing. And then the prophets, on the other hand, predict economic disaster and ecological disaster as a result of the people's sin. Hosea 4. He says, there is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing and lying and murder and stealing and adultery. And because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field and the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea are swept away. Jeremiah 4 is virtually a reversal of Genesis 1. I looked at the earth, says Jeremiah, and it was formless and empty. And at the heavens, and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking, and the hills were swaying. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. The fruitful land was a desert. Its towns lay in ruins before the Lord and his anger. So the Old Testament writers may not have understood the scientific connections but they could observe the reality. And based on Genesis 1 and 2, they could draw theological and ethical conclusions that our sin affects our world. Now, some of this is easy to understand. Whenever the environment is ravaged and exploited, it's usually for the short-term gain of a few people, usually the affluent and those in developed countries. People say, how can I get rich? How can I be fulfilled? And this leads to all kinds of evil, including environmental destruction. But Scripture tells us to start at a different point. Rather than starting with what helps us to flourish, it begins with what makes a person righteous. And the thought continues like this. If we are righteous in our acts, then creation flourishes. And if creation flourishes, we flourish. And similarly, when we sin through greed and selfishness, creation suffers, and when creation suffers, we suffer. 
And so if we follow the acts of biblical history that Christoph talked about last week, we have seen Act 1 as creation, the mandate to care. Act 2 is how it's all messed up through our selfishness and greed. But we know that redemption is coming in the next act. God's generous grace and human ingenuity may stave off some of the direct consequences of ecological crisis, but only for a short time. Extinction rebellion are right. There needs to be a radical solution, but probably even more radical than even they imagine. We are inextricably linked to the rest of creation. We cannot extract ourselves from this relationship nor does God want us to or intend us to. We live on a cursed earth, but it's a covenanted earth. God made a covenant not just with mankind, but in Genesis 9, it says he made a covenant with every living being that he will sustain and not destroy the earth. God's plan is not to take us out of a planet that we were never really meant to be on, but to redeem us as he redeems the whole of creation. That's foretold in Psalm 96. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, and the sea resound, and all that's in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. It's a picture that we see in that beautiful passage that was read earlier from Isaiah chapter 9 of the wolf and the lamb lying down together, and the cow and the bear having lunch, and the baby and the viper out on a play date. There's another one in Isaiah 65, a picture of a world that is joyful and safe. It fulfills job satisfaction. It is environmentally renewed. That's what's in store for us in the renewed kingdom of God. It's a little bit different from the childhood images we often have of heaven. When we get to the New Testament, we see in Jesus' teaching that God's eye is on the sparrow, so we should care about species extinction and protecting habitats. And he dresses the wild flowers in the field, so we should care about water pollution and over-farming and urbanization. And Paul in Romans 8 famously talks about all creation groaning until we experience redemption. And a few weeks ago, when we were looking at Colossians, there was a passage in Colossians 1 about all creation becoming subject to Christ. And again, that passage totally reverses the way that we normally think as Christians. We think individuals get saved, they join the church, they make a difference to the world, and eventually we enjoy the perfect presence of God. But Colossians 1 reverses that. It begins with the glory of God who is bringing all creation under submission to Christ. And his agent in doing that is the church, in which then we as individuals have a part. We get to join in the story. We get to play a part. Creation care, along with evangelism and social action, are intrinsically linked together as gospel discipleship issues. We were human before we were Christian. We didn't stop being human when we became Christians. The original creation mandate has never been rescinded. And Christians are not exempt because, quote, we have better things to do. The second great commission 
does not overrule the first one. It's simply the next stage in an overarching story whereby we continue to obey the first commission. Our mission is to show we care for what God cares for. That's what has driven other great responses to social issues over the centuries. Disease eradication, slavery abolition, make poverty history. And so it should drive us now. And so if you've been paying attention, we seem to have two things in tension here. On the one hand, as we go towards the end of the New Testament, there is the image in 2 Peter 3 of the world burning up and being destroyed. And then there are other images in Psalms or Isaiah of creation being renewed. So which is it? Is it of a totally new creation, the world burned up and God starting all over again? Or is it of a renewed creation with the world being cleansed and restored? What level of continuity is there between this world and the next? And what level of discontinuity is there? Well, people disagree. If you choose Peter as the overriding metaphor, then you tend to concentrate on the discontinuity. If you read, and you read Isaiah as some sort of new start. If you choose Isaiah as the dominant metaphor, then you see Peter's fire more as a purging, a cleansing rather than a complete obliteration. Now, I did say earlier that when you're reading the Bible, it's a good principle. You use the later to further explain the earlier. So is it Peter then that gives us more information than Isaiah? But then you see there's Revelation 22 that comes after Peter the very end of the Bible, and the image of Eden being restored. So I probably lean a little towards the renewal position. I think there will be more continuity than many people expect. Just as we will have, for example, a resurrection body that is still recognizably us, so too this world will have a resurrection body, the new creation in all of its beauty and diversity and teeming with life. Lambs are lambs, lions are lions, children are children. It's all there. It's familiar. It's interesting that in the verses from Second Peter that I quoted at the start, I actually missed out a verse in the middle. So you had the verses at each end, the day of the Lord coming, the heavens destroyed by fire, etc. And then in the middle, you have this verse. So what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God? You see, even if this planet is doomed, we have a mandate to care for it as an act of neighbor love and as an act of grace to a needy world. The fact that humanity is ultimately at the end doomed to judgment doesn't stop us spreading the gospel. The fact that our bodies are doomed to disease and death doesn't stop us looking after ourselves. And so neither should the temporary nature of this world Halt us in our mandate to care for what God has given us. If the coming day of the Lord spurs us on to evangelistic endeavor because we want more people to experience a foretaste of heaven through life in Christ by the Spirit now, 
so too, as Peter calls it, waiting and hastening the day of the Lord should spur us on equally to acts of environmental and social justice so that people get a foretaste of heaven now and want to know more. Lives of holiness and godliness involve loving God and loving our neighbor. And if you love someone, you don't trash their property. You'll notice that throughout the sermon, I have generally used the word creation rather than environment. And that's because I believe there is a fundamental difference between how a Christian approaches this subject and how others approach it. The cultural buzzword is the environment. But it's the environment of what? It's the environment of us. It's a homocentric term. The environment is there for us. It's all we have. Creation shifts the focus. Suddenly God is at the center. And we are recipients of a precious gift. Now if anything, we should have a stronger impetus and a greater motivation The culture is concerned for the environment generally out of fear and self-preservation. It's all we've got. It's all our children will have. However, the fact that Christians believe that this is not all we've got, far from demotivating us, should actually inspire us to greater acts of care, serving and protecting creation because our mandate comes from a higher source than ourselves, and we have been entrusted with a gift. So in closing, how do we do this? While I wanted to spend most time opening God's Word to establish the importance of this, I do want to finish with some practical examples, and I'm grateful to John Martin and Keith Patterson for helping me, not just with this section, but with some of what I've actually been saying so far. What do we do? First, two cautionary notes. Firstly, this is not the only issue. It's not even the lens through which we see everything else. It must be set alongside others with the various benefits and losses weighed against each other. For example, air travel may be environmentally costly, but we all know the advantages of broadening our horizons, especially when we're young by seeing and being exposed to different cultures. Uh, Travel helps to combat racism. It's educational. It acts as an impetus for cross-cultural mission. It has also facilitated humanitarian aid. It's made us possible for families to be reunited at times of grief and celebration, etc., etc. Often with a lot of these issues, you need to make personal decisions and weigh up the pros and the cons. Secondly, There shouldn't be any new legalism. We need to avoid pride and judgmentalism and guilt. There can be an awful lot of um, unbelievably smug behavior at times about this. Because all of us, I think, may be excellent in one area while we're blind to another. And for a culture that is so frenetically opposed to being judged in some moral areas, there can be a tendency to be extremely judgmental of how other people make their decisions on this issue. It is a discipleship issue, but we've got to see it as a process. We pray for wisdom as we make the choices and adjustments as we spur one another on to good works. We need to avoid a burden of guilt. We're not seeking 
to introduce a new legalism here or demotivate people by making it all so overwhelming uh, that they don't even start. So positively, where do we start? Where do we begin? My first point is this, reduce. We're familiar with the phrase reduce, reuse, recycle. Probably the forgotten member of that trio was the first one, reduce. As a culture, we produce too much, we buy too much, we use too much, we eat too much, we waste too much. Think about that especially at Christmas time. How can we be countercultural? Secondly, counteract food waste. I have it on good authority that the average family wastes, and this is wastes, 700 pounds per year on food waste. So buy only what you need, be creative with leftovers, buy locally, think particularly of what is seasonal, isn't coming from the far side of the world, especially if it's available from one of the many excellent local farms or producers. Thirdly, minimize non-biodegradables. Work towards zero plastic. This is becoming easier, thankfully. Reuse water bottles, lobby the supermarkets and retailers if there's too much unnecessary packing, etc. Next, assess how you travel. If you live on a good public transport hub, use it. I happen not to live on such a thing, but I have enjoyed splitting my journeys recently and using the glider if I can, because we have it now and it's good. Avoid excessive unnecessary air travel. In terms of work, you may think that I'm never in the country, but things like Zoom and Skype conference calls have certainly helped me cut down on even more travel, as it has done for many businesses. Then compensate when necessary. Such is the brokenness of our world that just by us existing as a modern human being, we are having a detrimental effect on creation. But there are ways we can compensate. The goal shouldn't be do everything or do nothing. Do something is perfectly okay. If I can borrow the phrase of one small step that was popular a while ago in terms of combating sectarianism here in Northern Ireland, let's take one small step on this issue. Let's deal with a few areas as we are able to and let us compensate where necessary. So as many of you know, I happen at the minute to be in a, a very travel-heavy job. I can speak all night about the benefits of my being able to visit believers in numerous countries, but it does have its cost in terms of air miles. So personally, we have had to look at how best to compensate in this area that affects us. For you, it might be a different area. Some things that we have done are reduce one or two trips by using Zoom or Skype, be rigorous in the other areas of conservation. So I think we were recycling before there was ever a cycle. Uh, recycling, reusables, renewables. Uh, I always pay the carbon offset charge. Uh, invest, we invest in reforestation or sustainable agriculture collectives like the Jubilee Farm. Cut down on red meat. Lots of other things that we can do to compensate. Then take an, act, take an active interest in God's creation. Take an active interest in God's creation. With every species that becomes extinct, we lose a little bit of our knowledge of God. With every species that becomes extinct, we lose a little bit of our knowledge of God who created that. With every culture 
that is eradicated through displacement of peoples by urbanization or rising ocean levels, we lose a little something of our knowledge of God. So let's move from consumers to conservers, from those who take from creation to those who give back in some way. Then next, take time out to enjoy and protect what we have left. Take time out to enjoy and protect what we have left. We will not be able to stem the tide completely. It will take Christ to return and usher in his kingdom before all of that happens. We may not even think we can do a lot, but we can begin with tackling the spiritual apathy that prevents us from even trying. And we can experience some of the restored harmony in our own lives, neighborhood, and country. Finally, let's not forget that we are good news people. We have good news for our neighbors. Full salvation and freedom from sin and guilt and shame and condemnation through Jesus Christ. We have good news for the nations. The walls are down. The gospel is for all peoples, every tribe and tongue. It's for the healing of the nations. But we also have good news for all creation. All the animals and the plants, the mountains and the rocks that will cry out his praise if we are silent. We can preach to the mountains and valleys and seas and islands like the prophets did and say, he's coming back to judge and restore all things. And meantime, we are here to serve you and protect you. We are your friends. Let me finish with this amazing quote from scientist Gus Speth, who was an advisor to the U.S. Senate once upon a time. He says this, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity, loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address those problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, apathy. And to deal with these, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And, says Speth, we scientists don't know how to do that. We Christians do. So let's get doing it.